this morning, went right to the kitchen and made myself an instant breakfast. Any of y'all do that? Don't we love instant? We love microwave. We love the quick stuff. I mean, we go to the, we, if I go to a drive-through at a restaurant, you know, I may call it a restaurant, really it's just fast food, but you can call it a restaurant because I do. <clears throat> but if I go to that drive-through and it's not really pretty quick, I get nervous. In fact, I want to go in there and find out what's the problem. I mean, I don't even, I, it, it, when I go into a restaurant and I'm at the counter and I've made the effort, I'm at the counter, I expect them to take care of me, not that person at the drive-thru. But when I'm at the drive-thru, I'm in a hurry or I wouldn't still be in my car. Come on, you know. That's the way a lot of us have come to that. And it's not just us, it's the entire Western world. One of the neat things, um, when I was in um, uh, Malawi, is they're not prisoners of the watches the way that we are. They're, they're not tied down to the time frame that we are. We, we as Americans, we were trying to hit our numbers exactly on and try to get this thing done and get it over by 2 o'clock. They didn't care. Y'all go to 12. We don't care. It's just fun. You know, they were just glad to be somewhere. And in a, in a conference, they were not tied down to the watches the way that we are. Well, some of that is because we have, we, we, we've come to love instant pudding. We love instant tea. We love instant this and instant other thing. We hate to go slow. I mean, I want, it's actually transferred even over into church where people want instant spirituality. And I'm here to tell you, folks, you don't get instant spirituality. There is no such thing as seven steps to spiritual growth that you can get done in four hours of listening to tapes and suddenly you're, you're Billy Graham's replacement by next Thursday. That's not how it works. God has a process, God has a way of doing things that God designed some things, He designs them to be slow. And we may not like that in God's kingdom, but maybe you've had a similar experience where you had to just take it one step at a time and grow through something, and finally at the other end of it you think, that was good, I'm glad I went through that. Well, usually not while you're going through it, but at the other end. God does that sometimes. Now, once in a while... God just, I mean, it's instant, it's total, it's just like a, a God in a, in a miraculous moment answers your prayer. I've had that to happen to me. I got that front parking place at Walmart. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a miracle sometimes. <clears throat> I only, well, anyway, sometimes God does that. He'll give us that instantaneous thing, and, and sometimes it's necessary because that's what He wants to do. But a lot of other times when, when you pray, God has a progressive, step-by-step, prog- I say, response to, to, your, to, your, uh, to your prayer. And God works in both ways. Your miracle may come in a moment. Your answer may arrive a bit at a time. Okay, Because <clears throat> God's process and preparation of the circumstances and you will usually take some time. Children grow up slowly, don't they? Now, some of us, we think, wow, I just remember last year, my kids were, my, my grandson's seven, my oldest seven-year-old grandson now. He's, we were up there last week, and my seven-year-old grandson said to my wife, Grandma, what do you want to be when you grow up? I thought, how precious is that? Somebody's been asking him that at school, you know, that kind of thing. So he, he wants to know what Grandma wants to be when she grows up. I thought, she ain't never going to grow up. But I had better sense than to say that out loud. Studies have shown that, uh, well, I better not say that. <clears throat> but uh, God's process and the preparation of the circumstances sometimes, He has a way of making that take some time. You know, when Moses left Egypt, I mean, he was in a hurry because he was running from Pharaoh because he, he, uh, uh, he had murdered someone. 
And it only really took a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks, for him to cross the entire desert and get to the backside over there to Midian. But did you know that God spent the next 40 years getting Egypt out of Moses? A long, step-by-step process of taking Moses out of his self... Uh, his self uh, how can I say this? Moses had learned to trust himself and he was prepared. He was ready to lead a nation. That's why he was going out there to rescue his people at 40 years old. And God said, you're not ready. You need 40 more years of preparation. And now the rest of that preparation took place out there in the desert. David was anointed to be king as a boy. I mean, he was the youngest of, of the, the brothers. He was just a kid out taking care of the, the, the sheep. He was anointed as king, and then he spent many, many more years preparing to be king before he was anointed, and I mean, before he was crowned as king. God is interested in the outcome. Yes, He is. God is interested in the answer, as we are. But God is just as interested in the process, and He's just as involved in the process because He's going to teach you and walk with you every step of the way. Most of our growth, whether it's spiritual growth, emotional growth, Most of our growth, even when it's relational growth and intellectual growth, happens in the process time. It's going to to really stick out here as we go through this text this morning. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter number 8. We're going to take up right where we left off last week, and we're going to explore an event in the life of the Lord where... This exact thing happened, and it's one of those, this is one of those places in Scripture where people scratch their heads and think, hmm, I wonder what that was all about. Well, we're going to find that out this morning. Because Mark chapter 8, verses 20 through to 22 through 26, talks about a time when Jesus healed a blind man, and it was the only time in all of Scripture that it worked this way, that it happened this way, and I want you to see it as we walk through it together. This is Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. I'll read aloud as, as you read along. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he, that's Jesus, laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Now this is an interesting place. As I said, a lot of people read this when they kind of scratch their head, and they wonder, huh, that's, that's strange. That was... So I want us to, to kind of walk through that, answer some of the questions, and then get the lesson from this, this section of Scripture here. Because in, as you go into this, it says they walked back into Bethsaida. Now, if, you know, if you've been following the actual geography of where Jesus has been, He went all the way almost to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, down Manutha, that area down there. And now He's worked His way back up the, the side or the shore of Sea of Galilee, He's back at Bethsaida, up at the top of this uh, lake that we call the, the Sea of Galilee, really just a, a gigantic lake. And then he's going to leave Bethsaida there, where he fed the 5,000, if you remember. And he's going to go up the river to Caesarea Philippi next week. And you'll see that as we do. He's going to go up that river. Well, he's headed north now. He comes to the city of Bethsaida. And uh, the Bible says there in verse 22, they brought him, they brought a blind man to Jesus. Now they, who is they? Uh, other translations say some people. Other, pe- other translations say just they or he was brought. Well, who was it that brought this man? 
I would, I, I, it doesn't say, it just says they, but you know, this was the place where Jesus had just, just a few days, maybe a few weeks before, had fed 5,000. Noise abroad is one of my favorite scriptural words. It was told that Jesus was back in town. And somebody heard, hey, Jesus is back in town. You remember the one that fed the 5,000, the one who got out of the boat and taught us as we were all there together? Well, he's back. And I, I just have to think, my friend who is blind, he wasn't there that day, or if he was, he didn't, Jesus, it doesn't say anything in Mark about Jesus healing those people, though I think he did on that day. But however the reason was, whatever the reason was, this man missed it. And so they bring him to Jesus, the one who fed the crowds. Now, were these people the ones that, the they, were they expecting to see some kind of, you know, real flashy miracle? Were they looking for a show? Did they want to say, hey, we brought you to Jesus so we get some credit? You know, some people do that. They think hey, they deserve some credit because they helped somebody get to Jesus. Listen, if God used you to bring someone to Christ, that's wonderful, but you don't get any credit. It's still by the Holy Spirit, it's still by the working of His blood that that person gets to heaven. It's not you. Thank God for you because you helped out. I'm glad for every person that led me to church and some of my, my family that drug me to church a time or two. But the fact is, all of those people that brought me to Christ, Jesus still gets all the glory. And so maybe they were wanting that. The ones who, 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 who loved the blind man, let's say it was this. Let's say it was this. They loved the blind man enough to bring him to Jesus because Jesus was the only one that could help this man. Jesus was their, their only hope. And it was probably a combination of those. Maybe one or two were just in it for the show and the excitement. But the question I want to know is, did the blind man know what was going on? Had he heard of Jesus? Well, he was blind, not deaf, so he probably had heard of Jesus. He might have been. But he probably missed Jesus the first time he was there in Bethsaida. And so they brought him. He wasn't on his own. He did not come on his own. They brought him. And they, it says there they were watching and expecting and begging for a miracle. I love that word implored. They came and they were asking Jesus. They really wanted Jesus to do something. Here, here, here he is, Lord. Heal him. Heal him, Lord. They were imploring him. And what Jesus does is so, it's, it's almost, it's one of those things you wonder, hmm, why did he do that? That's why I wonder sometimes about the motive of these people that brought him. Because what, what Jesus does next is so strange. He takes the man by the hand and leads him out of town. Away from the group that brought him away from the disciples, or at least the ones that were just curious, he takes the man by the hand leads him out of the town. And I think he did this because, listen, when Jesus does something for you, it's not for show. It's because of His great compassion. When the Lord Jesus does something for you, it's because He genuinely loves you. Jesus genuinely loved this man. Jesus wasn't doing this for wow factor, or to make Himself more popular, or to be notor you know, for more notoriety. And because of the way he was going to do this, he might have wanted to get out of town a little bit before he did it. I don't know, because this is one of those strange places where Jesus healed in a way that I am glad he's never put it on my heart to pray for somebody. Because he takes the man by the hand, brings him out of town, and then what's the next thing? Verse 23 there, it says, after spitting on his eyes. Now, I, we talked about this in Diving Deeper a little bit when we were there. <clears throat> As I say, I'm glad the Lord has never led me to do this. I have never yet had the feeling of the Holy Spirit helping me. Now, what you need to do is take somebody in their prayer circle and just spit in their eye. I'm glad that that's never been put on my heart. But for some reason, this was how God moved upon the Lord Jesus for this man to be healed. 
Now, only there was one other time when Jesus used his own spit. He he, pulled, he, he made spit on the he made spit on the ground, made mud, and plastered it on someone's eyes. He, so this was not the only time that he used spittle. But for some reason, and I can't explain it except that this is how he wanted to do it, how the Lord led him to do it. He spit in the man's eyes and put his hands on him. Now, the reason I say I think maybe this might have been why he took the man out of town is because I don't think the watching crowd would have understood. This is the one you want us to heal. Okay. I'm, no, I'm, this is problems for me. But that's what he did. He took him out of town for this. Okay, the man obviously was going with it. He was willing to put up with it. Jesus spit on his eyes. I'm sorry, that's what he did. Laid hands upon him, and then finally he asked him the question, Do you see anything? Well, the man looks up. He looks around. And he says, in verse 24, I believe, He looked up and said, I see men for I see them like trees walking around. Now that tells me several things about this man. Number one, he knew what a tree looked like. So what does that tell us? He used to be sighted, now he's blind. He's lost his sight somewhere along his life. I've heard other commentaries say, the reason that he thought they looked like trees is he bumped into a lot of trees. As a blind man, you bump into trees, and I think, you know, sometimes you go around trees too because it just, I, this tells me that he knew what trees looked like because now he's seeing this, this fuzzy blob out there that he's seen before somehow. That looks like a tree. I remember that from back in the day. That's what it tells me anyway. And so <clears throat> he says they look like trees, so he knew what trees looked like. But then Jesus touched the man, it says, on his eyes. A second touch. And there's another reason you see in this one. It says his, he began looking, he was restored. If something was restored, that means at one time it was a 57 Chevy that was running, and you restore it, and now it looks, all those parts were made in 1990, but it's, it's a 57 Chevy that's been restored. This man has his sight restored. Jesus touched the man a second time. The man stared around intently, and he could see clearly. And then Jesus did something else that's kind of a head scratcher here. Then Jesus sent him home. He ordered him to avoid going back into the village. Don't even go back into town. Some, some, some commentators say that he said, don't go into town, don't even talk to anybody, just go home. Interesting. Well, all of that story, which that's the whole text again, demands some questions. I mean, it kind of suggests some questions and demands some answers. Why did Jesus touch the man a second time? Was this such a profound blindness. I mean, was this guy's case so big and so bad that even God had to take a second whack at it? If you believe that, I've got oceanfront land in Arizona I need to sell you. Because don't you believe it that something was so big that it took God two tries? Remember, this is the same voice that very shortly after this is going to say to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth, and a dead man is going to get up and walk out of his grave. Jesus didn't have to take two whacks at this. This was the same voice that said, Peace be still, and a raging storm became a calm day at the lake. This was the same voice that in the book of Revelation says to John, Come up here! And John is immediately in the Spirit. The same one in the Old Testament who parted the sea. The same one who rescued Israel from slavery. The same one who created the universe by His own will. Don't try to tell me that this miracle of sight was just a little too much for God and he had to try it twice. So why? What was the purpose of the second touch? Well, there's a lesson in this healing. There's a message in this miracle. And I think it's this. 
your touch from God, your miracle from God, your gift from the Lord, I say most often, but sometimes it's instantaneous, but most of the time your touch from God will come in stages. It'll come a little at a time. It will come as a progress. It will come as degrees. If you take somebody who's in the third grade and you start trying to teach them differential calculus, is there any likelihood they're going to get it? They might. There are some brilliant third graders out there. But most of them are going to say, how do you spell differential? And that's as far as they're going to go. I'm not even sure what differential calculus is. Maybe some of you know. Ron, you know? He knows how to do it. Yeah, I, I don't... Yeah, see, I, I can recognize it when I see it, but that's enough. God takes us at one step at a time so that like that third grader needs to learn addition and subtraction and multiplication and division and then move on from there and learn all the higher math before they get to calculus. We have to grow up one step, one day, one bit of process at a time. God's touch comes by degrees. Most of the time, that's how we grow. God doesn't answer prayer because He's some kind of a great cosmic bellhop that we just put our order in and God sends it out on a conveyor belt. Most of the time, and I'll say this as a church, as individuals, as families, God's will for us is a work in progress. You and I are a work in progress. Now the Scripture tells us that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Does that mean someday five million years from now in heaven? No, I'll tell you what it means. It means that I'm predestined today to be more like Christ than I was yesterday. And I'm predestined tomorrow to be more like Christ than I am today. And I can say the same thing about each one of you that's been born again. You are predestined, pre-called, pre-intended. God's got it pre-loaded in His computer that tomorrow you're going to be more like Jesus than you are today. That's the plan. You are predestined to that. Now you can fight that all you want. You can try to backslide on that. And most of the time, backsliders are really not sliders at all. They've never slid forward, so they didn't slide back. They're just fighting God because they don't want to get saved. But the fact is, many of us, we want it today. And God says, you're not ready for that. You're ready for this today. More yesterday than today. See, what I want to do is today I want to be less like Adam and more like Jesus. Because I want to come out of my Adam-ness, my Adam-likeness, and I want to go into my Christ-likeness. That's a process that's going on on this earth. We're supposed to be in the middle of that right now. It's a growing work in progress. So don't be hurt if your prayer answer is a work in progress. Don't be amazed if your provision arrives as a work in progress. Don't even be, don't be surprised when peace has to come a little at a time. It's arranged by a work in progress because God's purpose arises as His progress works through us and we change from Adam-likeness into Christ-likeness day by day. Now, I'm born again. I'm immediately, I'm immediately in the Spirit as a, a born-again child of God. I'm in the likeness of Christ in my spirit. There's a whole lot of... There's a whole lot of uh... Aaron, would you go outside for just a second? Check the parking lot for me. I think it was a bird, but check. I look at myself sometimes and I think, wow, I'm so much further than I was, but boy, I've got so much further I want to go. I just have this thing, I'm a work in progress. I am in a process of progress. So with all that in mind, from this scripture, I just want to give you two or three points, actually I better say four points from this lesson. This lesson lived out in the life of this man that Jesus 
met there in the town of Bethsaida. What can we glean from this message with a miracle? Well, first of all, I want to suggest to you that as we read this, and the reason that this was a second touch, is that this is a lesson about perseverance. You know, perseverance doesn't mean you don't get tired. It just means you keep going. It means you endure the tiredness and you endure the obstacles. This is a lesson about perseverance. And so my first word here that I would say to this man and I would say to us as we continue to serve the Lord is don't give up. Don't give up just because it's not finished yet. How tragic it would have been if that blind man had stormed off in a huff because he opened his eyes and all he can see is like, wow, it's like trees. I knew this wasn't going to work. I knew it. I shouldn't have even come and stormed off. I mean, I can almost hear him. Doesn't that just tarry? Come to Jesus and this is all again. Hang on. The Lord is still on His throne. You may not be finished yet. Perseverance. God may, and let me say it this way. God will take us through some valleys. God will take you through some dark, in fact, as it says in the, in the Bible, valley of the shadow of death. God will take you through some valleys. But when He takes you through that valley, please don't camp there. When you get into the bottom of the valley, don't build a house and stay a while. Don't, don't stay in the valley. When David said what I you know, mentioned, the valley of the shadow of death, what does it say? It says, Yea, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Why? Because God's got plans for me on the other side of the valley. I'm in the, in the belly of the beast right now, but you know what? God's got a place for me on the other side. And, and when we come climbing up out of that shadow of death into the sunshine of God's presence, we're going to realize God was present with us the whole time. He walked through that valley with us. As we climb up into that sunshine, we'll discover that He had a plan all the time. In fact, one of the biggest verses that people have learned in the last 20 years is Jeremiah 29, 11. And it was given to the people of God as they were this close to going into Babylonian captivity. And they knew from Jeremiah's writings already that it was going to be 70 years their nation was going to be in captivity in the, the land of Babylon. And yet in that moment, God gives them this promise. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And then he goes on into verse 12 and he says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. And verse 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. What a promise. You think, wow, that's a pretty good promise when you're about to go into darkness. Well, God's people have been through darkness before. Think about the 40 years in the wilderness. That was a pretty deep, dark valley, especially for Caleb and Joshua as they bore with the rest of those people that were all going to have to die before they were able to go into God's promised land. What about the 400 years of slavery in Egypt? You talk about a deep, dark valley. But even through the deepest, darkest valley, God's will is still playing, still working, still moving. God's process is still at work every minute of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, of every decade. Even for some of this, for every century, God is still on His throne and God is still looking for that time through the valley on the other side. So perseverance is a letter. It's a lesson in perseverance, so don't give up. Move on with God. He has a next step for you through that valley. Get on with the program. But secondly, a second lesson is not only about perseverance, but it's a lesson about patience. And so from this, I would say to this man, I'd say to us as a church, don't stop believing Things don't always look like we want them to look. 
Don't stop believing. Don't stop. Don't lose. I hate to say it this way, but some people, when it when it's the going gets, you, you remember that old saying that when the when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Some people, when the going gets tough, that's when I quit. It's supposed to be easy greasy, and that way it's supposed to be all down the road. It's all good, all bad. It means I stop. All good means I go. No, don't stop believing. This blind man was brought to Jesus, but he didn't have to come. He had to believe in Jesus enough to allow himself to be taken to Jesus. He could have fought it. He didn't have to allow Jesus to take him by the hand and go out into the wilderness. He didn't have to allow this whole thing, the the situation, the way it worked. You know, the person who's in the midst of the valley, the the person who is suffering, is usually the person that is the most hopeless. The person with the, the cancer is the person that, unless they've really got a strong faith and a strong desire to go on, a lot of times they're the ones that become the most faithless because they can't see past the valley. They can't see the sunshine on the other side of the darkness. That's one of the reasons why some of us need to be that helper alongside. But when it's in your own life, don't stop believing. Because even in the midst of the darkest valley, you can believe God's promise. You say, well, I don't even know God's promise. Well, that's why He gives us His Word. But I can tell you this, even if you don't know God's promises yet, you can trust God's character. Because the same God that sent His own precious dear Son to die in your place is not going to drop you like a hot rock the first time you mess up. You can count on Him. He loves you. He loved you then. He loves you still. You can count on the character of God. And by the way, you can count on the program of God. Because God gets what He wants. God is genuinely sovereign. And he is still in control. I talked Wednesday night about how, how easy it would have been for Joshua and Caleb to stop believing. We were talking about Caleb the last two Wednesday nights. And Caleb had, he was that man who had the promise if you'll just, just hang on, Caleb, God's going to give you this whole mountain full of giants, <laughs> but it's yours. And he waited for 45 years while all of his friends, except Joshua and, and Moses, died. While all of the people down the street lost someone, Caleb kept going. Probably got to help with their kids as the the older folks began to die. But he waited for 45 years to see his promise kept. And when it was kept, he was still ready to take it because God kept him as well. Abraham, you remember him. He was 75 years old when he began to be called by God into a new life. And it was 25 years before that baby Isaac was born. 25 years of waiting. Some of us, we get anxious if we have to wait for 10 minutes. He waited for 25 years. Noah, he waited for a century. Noah, start building an ark. When's it coming? About 100 years from now. That had to be a long time. That's a big building project. You get into a building project that lasts 100 years. I don't think I want to. I'm glad it was Noah and not me. But I know one thing for sure. Don't stop believing because God keeps... His promise. The Word of God says in Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast to the confession, or excuse me, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. We, have a, we serve a faithful and a loving and a, a God we can believe in. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24 says it this way, faithful is He who calls you and He also will bring it to pass. Don't stop believing. Don't give up. Don't stop believing. Third lesson to take from this Scripture is a lesson about perseverance. Did I already say perseverance? Let's call it persistence then. How about that? That works. Starts with a P. 
sermon prep on the fly here. Persistence. Don't stop trusting. You know, there's going to come that time when you think, I've held on, I've held on, and I've held on, and I've held on, and the obstacles and the problems and the inconveniences and the, the, the negative stuff, it just, keeps, it just seems like it's more of that than I can stand. I'm just going to turn loose. No, you don't. You keep on trusting. You be persistent. Keep on trusting, especially when it seems that it's God Himself who is acting in a way that doesn't quite match what you expected. I can just imagine how it, it sounded to this man or how it felt to this man when he's expecting a touch and a healing and it doesn't happen exactly that way. Sometimes God provides in a way we're not expecting. Sonia and I went through something in uh, 2011 we were not crazy about. We had an F four and a half. It was 198 mile an hour winds when it hit my house. There was a tornado came in my back door and out my front. Leveled my house with us in it. I was hugging the Frigidaire. Tell people to this day, I owe my life to the Frigidaire. Well, it was actually God that gave me the Frigidaire, so I'm cool. This is God, right? But there were nine of us hiding in the kitchen, and the, the stove and the Frigidaire kept the house from falling on us. We walked out of that. It was, it was about this high above where we were at. That was all that was left of the house. Bricks and everything was gone. Best garage sale I ever had. Because the insurance bought me everything over again. I didn't have to go. It was amazing. Now, I don't really recommend anybody else going through what we went through in that whole process, but God has blessed our socks off. God provided in a way I never would have expected, and I really probably would have said, I'd, I'd really rather we don't go that direction, but God took us that direction. Now, maybe some of you can say, God took me in a direction that was, it was much deeper and darker and worse than that. But, but maybe you, as, as I can now, maybe you could stand and say, hey, I remember being in the bottom of that valley when it seemed darker than anything I've ever experienced, and yet at the other side, having experienced the darkness, the Lord walked me on up out of that valley into the sunshine. Because of persistence, we can keep on trusting. We can keep on trusting His promise. We can keep on trusting when the pain that never seems to be ending, keep on trusting. When the darkness never seems to be getting any lighter, keep on trusting. The same one who gave this process its start is going to bring it to its conclusion. My life verse is Philippians 1.6, where it says, For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it. Another translation says, we'll perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is working on me right now. And sometimes I fight Him and sometimes I'm all in. But God always wins. Because see, He's got me predestined to stop being Adam-like and be more Christ-like. As an individual, as a church, as a group, when you're in the middle of the process. I know the obstacles look big. I know the pain is real. I know that the problems seem gigantic. We were talking in Sunday school this morning about David and Goliath. And as Goliath would come out every day for all those days, he stood there and defied the armies of Israel. And he's just this one nine and a half foot tall man and his little armor bearer standing beside him and he defies the armies of, of, of Israel. Those guys... I mean, listen, you know about Saul. Saul was, he was like six and a half feet tall. He was a good-sized man. He was one of the biggest men in Israel. And he's shaking in his boots because of that nine and a half foot tall monster out there. Because when you're seeing the giant from your point of view, that problem, that obstacle, that, that 
negative thing looks pretty big, pretty hairy, pretty horrible. We need to learn, and it's something you have to grow in, but we've got to stop seeing these giants from our point of view where we're scared and small and start seeing that giant from God's point of view. Compared to me, big scary giant compared to God. In fact, I love how David said it. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? And I love it when he's actually talking to, to, to Goliath. Goliath says, you come at me as a dog with sticks and stones. And David said, I'm going to take your head off your shoulders, big boy. I'm going to feed your army to the, to the birds of the air. Well, it's pretty good when David said, I'm going to chop your head off. And he didn't even have a sword. He got one later on. In fact, he took it away from Goliath. But compared to me, big scary giant, but compared to God, Somebody asked Billy Graham one day what his favorite scripture was. And his answer was so classic. He said, well, uh, it's in here somewhere. If you ever heard Billy Graham preach, it was just one scripture right after another. And so people really wanted to know, Dr. Graham, what's your favorite scripture? And he said, it's in Isaiah chapter 53. It's verse 2. And it, I put a little bit of verse 1 and a little bit of verse 3 in. But this is Billy Graham's favorite scripture. It goes like this. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. And then this is the one he actually said, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Don't stop trusting. Don't stop trusting. Fourth thing. is progressive transformation. Now, this has got a good, good theological New Testament word called sanctification. Progressive, getting better, transformation. What it really kind of boils down to is don't go back to business as usual. Remember what Jesus told the man? Don't even go back into that town. Now, I don't know what Jesus was trying to keep him away from or keep him out of, but the lesson that I get from it is don't even go back to that old life. Don't let that old life define you. Don't let that old life draw you back. Get on with God's program and stop hanging on to the old things. That's what I'm learning from it anyway. God doesn't save us so that we can go back to our old life of sin all cleaned up. In fact, Scripture tells us that if that happens to you, you're worse off than you were before. God doesn't save us and clean us up so we can go back to a life of compromise. God doesn't bring us into a new life so that we can go back and play in the filth and greed, grime and greed. That greed works. He saves us for service. He saved you and me because, listen, He had a plan to redeem us. Well, then He also has a plan to empower us. And then He also has a plan to employ us. And when we say, yeah, I'm happy, I'll take some salvation, please, but I don't need any of the rest of that stuff. No, no sanctification today, thank you. God's Word and God's will and God's program is not like a cafeteria line where we can just take and choose whatever we want and then go back over here and watch Gunsmoke. Nothing against Gunsmoke. Some of you kids don't even know what that is. Yeah, poor kid. But God has a plan. In fact, you know, a lot of us know the verses in Ephesians 2. I've, I've quoted them many times where it says, uh, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then verse 10 is the real critical verse for us today. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for 
good works or unto good works, which God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God has a plan that doesn't stop when you get saved. He wants you to get saved and then leave behind that Adam likeness more and more and more every day. When God brings you to a life change moment, He expects that life change to keep going. When that moment happens, that's great, but now the next moment comes. Let's let that continue. Don't go back to business as usual. Don't stop trusting. Don't stop believing. Don't you dare quit! But Brother Robert, you don't understand. It's so lonely following Jesus. There's a whole lot of people out there that aren't following Jesus. And you're right. And when you come into a new life, I, this, I experienced the same thing. When I started following Jesus, I lost every friend I had. I mean, in, in, in Big Bad Boom Boom Blanchard. Whoa! I was a band nerd, and all of a sudden I was a band nerd by myself. Because they all still had their life of drinking and partying and everything else, and I'm walking with Jesus now. Oh, Robert, you're going to come back, right? This will all blow over. Uh, no, I got the real deal. I'm going with Jesus. Not bragging, I'm just telling you, my life changed. I didn't want to go back to business as usual, and it did get lonely. I had to make all new friends. I'm still working on that, as a matter of fact. But somebody says, it's not just lonely, it's difficult. It's hard to leave behind all those things I know. I'm used to that. It's, it's the way I have been, the way I want to be. Well, not anymore. God's got a different plan for you. It might be difficult, and it might actually be challenging. And somebody might say, well, yeah, not only that, but I mean, what difference, what real difference could one person make? What real difference could one family make? Well, I mean, we're just a small church on the backside of Blanchard. What in the world could we really do to change this world? I heard a story just this week about Romania. I've got to share it with you. I don't think I can get through it without crying. If I get choked up, just, that's fine. But listen, 1989, December in Romania. Romania's a former Soviet republic. At the time, it was still totally socialist. A guy by the name of Ceausescu was the strongman, the dictator. He was the one that was in charge. He'd been in charge so long that the little school children in Romania had to call him Lord Ceausescu. That's how kind of our dictator he was. And every so often, now he allowed Christianity in his country, but only to a little extent. It's like, well, you can do what you want, but when I want to do what I want, I'll do it. And so every so often he'd round up Christians and put them in jail just to remind them that he could. Every so often he'd bulldoze churches just to remind them that he could. And one day, here it is, it's two days before Christmas, 1989. He signs an order for a church to be bulldozed. He'd done that thousands of times. It's no big deal. But this time, that little church, there was only 25 people that went to that church. 25 people against Ceausescu, the army, the tanks, everything that Ceausescu had that he could send against them. But they just decided that's enough. Not this time. So the next morning was actually the day before that. It was on the 23rd when the, the tanks, not the tanks, the, the, the bulldozers come rumbling up to this church to, to knock it down. Right there on the steps are 25 people, arm in arm. Now they didn't have any weapons because one of the first things the socialists did was disarm everybody. So you know what they had as their weapon? They sang hymns. Arm in arm singing hymns. I don't know what they were singing because it was in Romanian, but you know. They stood there. Well, those bulldozer drivers didn't know what to do. What are we going to do now? So they just walked, they drove off. They thought, well, you know, they're Christians. They'll give up. They always do. So they came back a few hours later to, to bulldoze the church. That's what their order was. Only now, by word of mouth, that 25 people 
had turned into 400 people. And now they're, they're arm in arm and they're singing and it's a mighty choir singing praises to Almighty God over the noise and the rumble of those, those bulldozers. And now the bulldozer guys think, we can't bulldoze down 400 people. So they go away. They think, well, this was a one-day thing. We'll show back up in the morning and if this happens again, we're calling the military. Because they think, what are we supposed to do? We should have just gone through. They would have got it out of the way. The next morning, they come in, come around the corner, and the crowd estimates that have been done from aerial photography said there was over 10,000 people there protecting that church. 10,000 believers had shown up to say, this is it. We're drawing a line in the sand. You can't do this anymore. 10,000. Arm in arm, singing praises to God. Ceausescu had to be informed. They informed Ceausescu. He said, send in the tanks. We'll run them off. The tanks came rumbling down the road. They're singing their praises. The tanks are getting closer. They're singing their praises. The guys in the tanks button up. They get their machine guns. They have the order to start machine gunning people. And the machine guns start to ta 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 People all over the front row start to fall. Christians bend to minister to their loved ones and to their neighbor. And others step over and take the front row. Hundreds are falling all over. That happens three different times where people step forward and take over and say, no, I'm willing to die because some things are worth dying for. After about the third round, somebody, nobody knows who gave the order, but somehow all of the communists, all the socialist machine gunners, they just stopped. And they got out of their tanks and they're looking at each other wondering, what are we doing? We're machine gunning down our own people. How could we be doing this? The hymn is still rising. So those tanks, they buttoned up. They drove across town to the Imperial Palace. They pulled Ceausescu and his wife out, took them down to the city park, and executed them on the spot for crimes against humanity. The next morning, it was Christmas morning, because that was Christmas Eve when that happened. Christmas morning, the newspaper there, that was used to be a communist rag, the newspaper said, the Antichrist is dead and Jesus is born. Because one little group of people said, I'm not going to give up. God is still on His throne. God is still faithful. I am not going to give up. Because some things are worth dying for. Well, let me ask you this question. Are those same things worth living for? Growing in Christ is going to take some time. Following the Lord Jesus Christ may not happen all in one day. And even when it seems like God is not at work providing, God is at work providing. He just may be working somewhere you can't see it. Even when it seems like God is not really very loving, He's still loving when He's at work. It may not be exactly the way we expect it, but God is still on His throne, developing you and me into the likeness of Christ. Developing your character into the character of Christ. Developing your integrity into the integrity of Jesus. And that's what He's doing. So my question before we're finished here is, do you qualify? Are you one of those people he can work in? Or are you one of those people that said, well, yeah, I went down there to that church, and I like to go to that church because they're happy people, and I like to be with them. But have you really ever surrendered your, your life, your heart, your, your, your entire being to the Lord? Have you accepted Christ Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Well, I walked an aisle one time, preacher. That's not what I asked you. 
I want to know, is Jesus your Lord right now? Because there is a difference. Walking an aisle doesn't save you. Being a church member is not the same thing as salvation. We as a congregation, we as individuals have to know whether or not Jesus is really Lord in our own hearts and our own lives. Because if He really is, you'll start this process of change. You'll leave behind Adam-likeness more and more every day and see in your life Christ-likeness more and more every day. It is a, it's a guarantee. In fact, Jesus said it this way, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. He's still in that process with a lot of us, with all of us really, because until we die, He's still going to be moving us closer and closer to Christ-likeness. Then we hit the fast-forward button. This morning, some of us here need to be saved. This morning, some of us here need to say, Lord, I have felt the weight and the pressure, but I'm ready to, I'm ready to just trust you one more time. Yes, Lord, this valley's deep and dark, but I know you have a sunshine on the other side. Let's pray. Thank you.